California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know, there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the podcast on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. You can gain access to at least one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than 40 episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal starting at just a dollar. At the moment, I can't find my list of new patrons, so I will search around for it and try to get you in the next episode. If you are unable to sign up for a monthly subscription to Patreon, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps. Now, at the moment, I'm a little winded because I just got home from shopping and I wanted to try to record this, and it is 112 degrees outside. So I'm not really feeling great, but I really need to get this episode out there for you guys. But before we get started, I must provide you with this warning. This episode contains content involving the murder of a young and disabled child. Though we will keep the details to a bare minimum, it is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Because I've taken a little bit of time away to deal with some things here at home, we will just go ahead and get started straight away. Thank you for your patience while waiting for this 147th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Sins of the Father. There was a book published in 1983 entitled Hitman, a Technical Manual for Independent Contractors. It was published by Paladin Press and they sold about 13,000 copies of the book. Some years later, the publisher was sued in order to get them to pull the remaining 700 copies that they had on hand and to stop production of any future copies. Of course, you see what the conundrum is with all of this. Because the book is entitled Hitman, a Technical Manual, and that's exactly what you would think the pages of the book would contain. It is essentially a checklist for a hitman to refer to before, during, and after a contract killing. But the pulling of the book and no longer making it available for sale is an infringement on every American's First Amendment rights to free speech and freedom of the press. 
No Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. So why the battle to pull the remaining copies of the book and make them surrender the publishing company's rights to ever publish and reproduce the book? Well, because it has been alleged that the book was used for exactly what it was intended, for a killer to carry out the perfect hit, that the book has been directly associated with one contract killing used by the killer as a step-by-step guide on carrying out a hit when he was hired to kill a mother, her severely disabled eight-year-old son, and the son's overnight nurse. The son required round-the-clock care for the condition that he was in. And investigators who worked this case back when it took place in 1993, 10 years after the book was published, made at least 22 connections between the book and the crime itself. The book is not that easy to find. I had to do some digging online. It took me several Google searches because the link to the book in Wikipedia was no good. But I did find it, and it's now become a part of the public domain. Ironically, more people have had access to the book than they ever would have if it had just been left with the publisher. It doesn't sound like it was exactly flying off the shelves, to be honest, but it only takes one person to misuse the book in order for the judicial system to step in and start infringing on freedom of speech rights. The book, it isn't that long, and it is dated, you know, so much with surveillance and cell phone towers and everybody having phones with them just about everywhere these days. Circumventing those things wasn't a consideration 37 years ago, and advancements in forensics and technology have made the book obsolete. But I read through it quickly, and I honestly had so many WTF moments going through it. It is, hands down, the stupidest book I've ever read. And the author, he is completely self-aggrandizing, egotistical, misogynistic, and totally ludicrous. However, if his target audience in writing this garbage were like the Eric Harris's and the Dylan Klebold's and the Elliot Rogers or the Alec Manassans of the world, then by gosh, he hit the mark. I honestly could not see this book being useful in any way. I mean, because look, if someone is hell-bent on killing somebody, they're going to try and come up with the perfect crime regardless of the book. To me, it was completely pointless. I can't really think of it being useful for anything unless the book is either being used as a reference point for an aspiring writer or a filmmaker who is interested in developing a screenplay or could use the information that this book contains, or if it's going to be used to carry out a contract killing. After reading the book, I'm kind of gobsmacked that it even sold 13,000 copies. And most of the book, as useless as it seems like it would have been back in the 80s, nowadays is completely obsolete. And anybody who would think using this book to learn how to carry out the perfect hit is as stupid as the book is. Anyway, since the book is in the public domain, I am going to periodically touch on some key points as we go along here in this case. I'll actually go over several passages as we go along, because me telling you how dumb it is, 
I mean, you need to hear some of this junk for yourselves. So first, let me read you the preface, and then we'll get into the story for this episode. A woman recently asked how I could, in good conscience, write an instruction book on murder. How can you live with yourself if someone uses what you write to go out and take a human life? She whined. I'm afraid she was quite offended by my answer. And dreamers, I'm pretty sure we're all about to be offended too. It is my opinion that the professional hitman fills a need in society and is, at times, the only alternative for quote-unquote personal justice. Moreover, if my advice and the proven methods in this book are followed, certainly no one will ever know. Some people would argue that in taking the life of another after premeditation, you act as God, judging and issuing a death sentence. But it is the employer, the man who pays for the service, whatever his reasons might be, who acts as judge. The hitman is merely the executioner, an enforcer who carries out the sentence. There are many, many instances when atrocities are committed, so the law cannot or will not pursue. And other times when the law does its part, but the American legal system is so poor that real justice is not served. In those cases, as in cases of personal revenge or retribution, a man must step outside the law and take matters into his own hands. Since most men are capable of carrying out their threats and wishes only in their heads, it becomes necessary for a man of action to step in and do what is required. A special man, for whom life holds no real meaning and death holds no fear. A man who faces death as a challenge and feels the victory every time he walks away the winner. Some men could not kill under any circumstances. Others could kill only in self-defense to protect what they hold dear. One man learns to kill in times of war and spends the rest of his life trying to forget the horror. While his brother may consider all his wartime efforts a justifiable part of his past, having no effect on his present. How many times have you shared a few beers with a group of macho buddies who eventually turn to the subject of conversation from women in sports to that of guns, ammunition, wars, and killing? Dreamers, I honestly have no idea because I don't think I have any macho buddies in my circle of friends. Anyway, it continues... It seems like almost every man harbors a fantasy of living the life of Mac Bolin or some other fictional hero who kills for fun and profit. Now, dreamers, I didn't know who Mac Bolin was or is, and I looked it up. He is a fictionalized character known as the Executioner, characterized as a vigilante of sorts, kind of like an American version of James Bond. He's been featured in about 600 books since the first one was published in 1969. It looked as though there were talks of a movie were in the works back in 2014 with Bradley Cooper, rumored to be the one starring as Mac Bolin, but it does not appear that anything ever came to fruition with that. They dream of living by their reflexes, of doing whatever is necessary without regard to moral or legal restrictions. But few have the courage or the knowledge to make that dream a reality. 
when the bragging and boasting starts. I just sit back and smile as one after the other talks of what he would do and how he would be if it weren't for family obligations or mortgages or corporate jobs. You might be like my friends, interested but unsure, standing on the sidelines afraid to play the game because you don't know the rules. Within the pages of this book, you will learn one of the most successful methods of operation used by an independent contractor. You will follow the procedures of a man who works alone, without backing of organized crime or on a personal vendetta. Step by step, you will be taken from research to equipment selection to job preparation to successful job completion. You will learn where to find employment, how much to charge, and what you can and cannot do with the money that you earn. But deny your urge to skip about looking for the good parts. Start where any amateur who is serious about turning professional will start at the beginning. Um, is it just me, or did the hypermasculinity get kicked up a few toxic notches here? Now, before I go on, if you look up the author of the book, Rex Farrell is credited with writing the book. However, it's a pseudonym. If you look online, you will find some articles that say a cash-strapped Florida mob named Gail McCool is the author of the book. This is not true. The author's real name is Richard Oliver Hans Jr. And I looked around for him, but there's nothing out there. I found an obituary under his name from Florida, but other than that, the Google search got me nowhere. It doesn't seem as though he had any significant career as an author, and I can see why, but there's nothing to be found. So to be clear, a woman did not write this crap. It was a guy. So make no mistake about that. There's lots of false information out there. And thank goodness too, right? That would like double the cringe if this was the work of any woman. And this is not an impressive book at all. At all, not in the least. Okay. So let's delve into the case. At the center of the story is a man named Lawrence Horn. I did not know who this man was when I first stumbled across his name. I was actually poking around looking for information on the killing of Motown recording artist Marvin Gaye when I noticed Horn's name somewhere in my searching. Born in 1939, he was originally from Detroit, Michigan. He began working in the music business as a DJ on the aircraft carrier, the USS Lake Champlain, for their radio station under the name The Man with the Plan. Sometime in the 60s, he was hired on with Motown Records in Detroit as a sound engineer. In 1968, Horn parted ways with Motown, opting to join a music production company, which was a collaborative effort on the part of three former Motown songwriters called Holland Dozier Holland, but we will call it HDHP. They would go on to work and write songs for several legendary musicians, including Marvin Gaye, The Four Tops, The Supremes, Diana Ross, The Isley Brothers, The Temptations, and they're responsible for the writing credits for at least one Jackson 5 song and one song for Michael Jackson. Horn stayed with HDHP until the end of the 1970s when he decided to venture off and become an independent music producer. In 1983, he was once again working as a producer 
and sound engineer for Motown, but he was laid off in 1990 when the record company went through massive overhaul and restructuring. Horn was married for one year in the late 1960s to a woman named Juana Royster, a receptionist at Motown. Then in 1972, he decided to leave Detroit and move to Los Angeles. And it would be sometime in 1972 that he met a woman named Mildred Marais. We'll call her Millie. The couple got married in 1973, but would end up separating in 1979, eventually filing for divorce in 1981. They had a daughter, Tiffany Horn, born in 1974, who, at the time our story took place, was away at college at Howard University. Despite the several years that passed between the filing of the divorce and the actual divorce being finalized, the couple became pregnant again with twins, giving birth to Tamil and Trevor Horn on August 8, 1984. The divorce was finalized in 1987, Millie was 10 years younger than her ex-husband. Having been born in South Carolina on November 8, 1949, she was one of 14 children. From the time that she was very young, it was her dream to become a flight attendant. And that's exactly what she was doing, along with raising her three children by the time our story here took place. And she did relocate with her children clear across the country to Maryland, just a few miles north of Washington, D.C., Meanwhile, Horn ended up losing his job with Motown in 1990, and his career, which had once been pretty lucrative, began to take a nosedive. He was beginning to drown in debt, and part of that debt was back child support that had by then reached about $16,000. And to complicate things even more, one of the twins, the boy, Trevor, had undergone some sort of medical procedure on September 16th, 1986, just after his second birthday. And something along the way went terribly wrong during the surgery, leaving Trevor with severe brain damage. He suffered from cerebral palsy and he was quadriplegic. He would require around the clock nursing care for the rest of his life. As a result of this medical mishap, Trevor was awarded a malpractice settlement of $1.7 million that was placed in a trust fund for his ongoing care. So, by 1993, Millie was living in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is located about 25 minutes north of Washington, D.C. Her eldest daughter was away at college, and it was just Millie and the twins. Her sister, Vivian, only lived about half a block away, and on the evening that our story takes place, Trevor's twin sister, Tamil, was spending the night at her aunt's house. Back in Los Angeles, where Horn resided, he was continuing to struggle financially. Remember, he was a man who worked in the music industry with some very successful artists, and he had grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle. But the money flow was drying up, and the debt was mounting. And somewhere along the line, he began to look for a way out. A windfall, a large sum of money that could be the answer to all of his problems. Before long... He was eyeballing his son's $1.7 million trust fund that he was awarded for that malpractice lawsuit. If he could somehow become the beneficiary of the trust, he could dissolve it. In order to make that happen, he was going to have to remove his ex-wife from the equation. 
At some point, he arrived at the conclusion that she was going to have to die. But then, he also decided that his eight-year-old disabled son, Trevor, was going to have to die too. I don't know if Horn wanted to ensure his sole control over the trust fund. I mean, if Trevor's mom passed away, Horn is the dad, and I'm fairly certain that he would have been given full parental rights over Trevor and his trust fund. And there would really be no one to challenge him. But once I got to thinking about it, the only conclusion I could come to is that the reason he would want to eliminate Trevor as well is quite possibly because Horn didn't want to be burdened with caring for him for the rest of his life. So why not just get rid of both of them? Financial problems solved and no need to worry about taking care of his brain-damaged quadriplegic son. And with that, Lawrence Horn set in motion his plan to murder both Millie and Trevor. If you recall, I mentioned a little while ago that Trevor's twin sister, Tamil, was sleeping over at her aunt's house the night of this crime. So whether or not she was targeted too, I can't say for sure. She wasn't in the house. But if she was, I have little doubt that she would have been a victim as well. Oh, and as we go along here, when I start pulling quotes from the Hitman manual, the author is going to refer to the person doing the hiring of the Hitman as the employer, and the person who is the target of the hit as the mark, and the hit itself is called the job. So sometime in late 1992, Horn became acquainted with a man from Detroit by the name of James Perry. They met through Horn's cousin, Thomas Turner. I didn't find a whole lot of information about Perry, but within a year of meeting Horn, they had reached an agreement. Horn wanted to hire Perry to murder his ex-wife and his eight-year-old son. They came to terms, and as Horn quietly waited for his payday back in Los Angeles, Perry was in Detroit studying up on becoming a hitman, using, of course, the hitman's technical manual for independent contractors. <laughs> I can't believe this guy thought he was going to become a professional hitman by reading this book. It's so ridiculous. So by March of 1993, Perry seemed ready to carry out the plan. Now that he's carefully followed the step-by-step -step instructions in the hitman manual. Around midnight in the early morning hours of Wednesday, March 3rd, 1993, a man named James Perry checked into the Days Inn Hotel in Rockville, Maryland. And right off the bat, we have Perry's first screw-up. Because you see, if he had followed the instructions carefully in Chapter 7 of the Hitman Manual under the subheading of Part 2, Destination, he would have read the following instructions. The excitement is building as your plane comes in for a landing. Where will you stay and how will you get there? Unless you know your way around, you can use mass transit to your advantage. You probably need to rent a car, though. Nothing flashy and in a solid color. Ask for a map of the city from the rental agency or purchase one at the airport newsstand if one was not provided to you by your employer. A place to stay is the next priority. It can be any motel, fancy or cheap, 
but it should be in close proximity to the job site to prevent excessive travel. Now, Dreamers, he did get that part right. His hotel was close to Millie's place of residence. The book goes on. In fact, if you can find one within walking distance or jogging distance of the hit, you can forego the car rental and taxi to the motel, not to the job site. Just don't over or under tip the driver or get into any extensive conversations with him. This is where a disguise can come in handy. You see, dreamers, when Perry checked in, he registered under his real name for some reason, opting not to use an alias as the book had suggested. He listed an address in Michigan and provided the license plate number of the car. He was paying cash for the hotel, as the hitman book suggested, but in doing so, he was required to provide a form of identification, at which time he offered a Michigan driver's license. This was his real ID. His picture was on it, and it had not been doctored or altered in any way. As for the license plate number he provided, it turned out to belong to a vehicle registered to a woman named Betty Jo Riggs of Lansing, Michigan, and she had no idea who James Perry was or how he would be associated with her plates. So we have here Perry following the instructions of the book by stealing an out-of-state license plate and putting it on his rental car. Perry was not living at the address he provided at the hotel. It was his former address. So he's making some attempts to cover his tracks, but he's being pretty lazy about it, to be honest. Later on, into the early morning hours, a woman named Janice Saunders was working as Trevor Horn's overnight nurse in the home where he lived with his mom and twin sister. At two in the morning, Janice made some notations on Trevor's condition, which is standard procedures, to keep records and to pass the information on to the next nurse who would be coming in to relieve her. The injuries that Trevor had sustained back in 1986, his prognosis for survival was really grim. The doctors didn't think that he was going to make it. But as soon as he was clear to go home, Trevor began showing major improvements. He couldn't walk, but he could crawl around on his belly. He was able to lift small, lightweight things. Trevor had cerebral palsy and pretty extensive brain damage, but he was doing well. He was able to play games. He interacted with his fellow classmates, and he was able to say some words. He had a tracheostomy, so he breathed mainly through the trach tube, and he received oxygen and humidification through those tubes that ran from the machines to a collar that was loosely fitted around his neck. When he went to school, he used portable oxygen machines. The fact that Trevor was able to speak some words meant that some air was getting past the trach tube. So, to be clear, Trevor was very much alert and aware of everything going on around him. He was living his life as normally as possible, thanks to the love and care he was receiving from his family and friends. And seeing that his chances of surviving the incident at Children's Hospital were not looking good at the time, he did survive. And it was very much a miracle. At around 2.30 that morning, Millie's oldest daughter, Tiffany, talked to her mom on the phone from her dorm at Howard University. She normally didn't call her mom at that time, 
but she had accidentally hit her mom's number on her speed dial when she was actually trying to call her boyfriend. Two nights earlier, at around 10.30 p.m. on the evening of Monday, March 1st, Tiffany had spoken to her dad on the phone who was in Los Angeles. Tiffany later recalled that the conversation involved her dad asking many questions about her mom and her little sister, Tamille, specifically when they were going to be home. Tiffany would later go on to testify that her father had previously asked her to take some videotape footage from inside her mom's house in an attempt she now believed was for her dad to show the hitman, James Perry, so he could be familiar with the layout of the home. Two nights later, at around 2.03 in the morning, Horn turned on his camcorder and began taking videos of his Los Angeles apartment. He also taped some footage of the TV, which was turned on, and he had the camera pointed directly at the date and time that the killings were about to take place across the country. Clearly, he's accounting for his whereabouts, placing himself all the way in California from what is about to happen in his ex-wife's home. At 5.12 a.m. on the morning of March 3rd, a 22-second phone call was made from a Denny's restaurant in Gaithersburg, Maryland, to Horn's Los Angeles apartment. 48 minutes later, a witness named George Murphy, who lived in a townhome about five minutes away, passed a van with a handicap placard parked in a reserved parking space. This van would later turn out to belong to Millie Horn. 30 minutes after that, at 6.30 in the morning, James Perry checked out of his hotel. At around 7.15 that morning, Millie's sister, Vivian, stopped in at her house before going to work as she did every morning. It was their routine. When she got there, she was surprised to find the garage door open, the van was gone, and she could hear Trevor's sleep apnea alarm sounding. Vivian called 911, and when police arrived, they discovered the lifeless bodies of Millie, Trevor, and his nurse, Janice. Millie had been shot three times in the head. One of those shots went through her eye and came to rest in her brain. Janice had been shot twice, also with one bullet entering into her eye, lodging in her brain. So, if we refer back to the Hitman's Technical Manual in Chapter 2 entitled Equipment, it says, Close kills are by far preferred to shots fired over a long distance. You will need to know beyond any doubt that the desired result has been achieved. When using a small caliber weapon like the 22, it's best to shoot from a distance of 3 to 6 feet. You will not want to be at point blank range to avoid having the victim's blood splatter on your clothing. At least 3 shots should be fired to ensure quick and certain death. You can judge when death has occurred by observing the wound. When the blood ceases to flow, the heart has stopped working. Check for a pulse at both the wrist and throat as an added precaution. If you must do your shooting from a distance, use a rifle with a good scope and a silencer and aim for the head, preferably the eye sockets if you're a sharpshooter. Many people have been shot repeatedly, even in the head, and survived to tell about it. Close kills enable you to determine right away if you have successfully fulfilled your part of the contract. Distance shots mean waiting around to read about it in the morning paper. 
So dreamers both Millie and Janice were shot through the eye, just like the book suggested. As for Trevor, he died of asphyxia. His body was discovered in his bed that was somewhat like a large crib. He was surrounded in stuffed animals and his monitors. Alarms were going off with a loud shrill that could be heard through the entire house. But at first, the medical examiner thought Trevor died as a result of his equipment having been turned off or malfunctioning. But when the medical examiner received more information about the circumstances surrounding Trevor's death and upon closer inspection of his body, the assessment was changed to Trevor's oxygen being cut off by suffocation. Someone had placed one hand over his tracheostomy opening in his throat and the other hand was placed over his nose and his mouth. There was also a blade of grass found on his cheek which would have been very unusual for that to be there. <clears throat> Sorry, dreamers, this is making me very sad. Okay, so when it came time for the evidence found inside Millie's home, it was found that a few areas of the house had been disturbed or tossed about. A rug and a cocktail table in the living room had been moved Cushions on a sofa in the family room had been placed on the floor. The contents of Millie's purse had been dumped on the floor of a downstairs bathroom. A rug in the upstairs bathroom had been kicked to the side. A bookcase in Tiffany's room had been pushed over. Millie's bedroom had things tossed around, but it was nothing major. The screen on a basement window had been removed and there were pry marks on the window frame and a set of French doors leading out to the backyard deck had puncture marks in the weather stripping. Millie was missing a Gucci watch, but otherwise, no other valuable jewelry was taken, and there was even a five-carat diamond tennis bracelet placed on the counter in the bathroom that was not taken. Janice's personal belongings were not disturbed. She too had on some expensive jewelry. There were some credit cards missing from Millie's wallet, but those credit cards were later found by a jogger that same morning along the roadside, not too far from the scene of the murders. So now referring back to the Hitman Manual in Chapter 7, entitled Getting the Job Done Right, it says, The secret, now that the deed is done, is to stay in total self-control. Don't panic. Don't hurry. Wait until you know beyond any doubt that you have accomplished your assignment. Check for a pulse at both the wrist and throat. Drag the body out of line of view of windows and doors so discovery will be delayed. Cover up any spots of blood with carefully dropped newspapers or clothing so that too will not be visible to arouse suspicion of anyone peeking inside. And in this case, that we're talking about the killer used sofa cushions and an area rug to cover blood that would have been spotted by a passerby. Take a few minutes to calmly survey the scene for any evidence that you may have left behind. Pick up those empty cartridges that were ejected when you fired your gun. Did you remove your gloves for any reason? I hope not. Because many a man has been caught because he thoughtlessly removed his gloves after making the kill to help himself to food or drinks from the victim's fridge. If the hit was supposed to look like a burglary, mess the place up a little bit, 
and take anything of value that you can carry concealed. Of course, you can't keep anything. These items will have to be ditched along with your work clothes and weapon. But any cash that you find is yours to pocket. At approximately 11.50 a.m., still on Wednesday, March 3rd, a one-minute phone call was placed from a payphone at a post office on Wilcox Avenue in Los Angeles to the Days Inn Perry was staying at in Maryland. This particular call was charged to a phone card that had been issued to a woman named Camilla McKinney. This name was an alias, however, used by a woman named Marsha Webb, and her cousin is none other than Lawrence Horn. Marsha Webb obtained the card using the fake name of Camilla McKinney because her own phone service had been cut off due to a failure to pay her bill. The card was issued to her in February of 1992, and it was first used on April 3, 1992, 11 months before the murders. The last time the card was used was in December of 1993. Marsha would later report to investigators that she obtained the card using a fake name because her cousin, Lawrence Horn, asked her to do so. Horn told her that the reason he needed the card was because he would be traveling back and forth to Maryland and did not want the bills coming to his home address. Once Marsha obtained the card, she used it herself a handful of times, and from there she gave the card to Lawrence Horn. However, the card was used to make calls from both Detroit and Los Angeles, and those calls were between Perry and Horn. Marsha said that she did not know anyone named James Perry, nor did she give her card information out to anyone else except her cousin. In total, the card was used to make 70 calls from Perry's Detroit residence to Horn's Los Angeles residence. It was used to make 66 calls from Horn's Los Angeles residence to Perry's Detroit residence. An additional six calls were made from various locations around Los Angeles to a place called Frankel's Bar in Detroit, one of Perry's frequent hangouts. 13 more calls were made using the calling card from Los Angeles to Maryland during the time that Perry was checked in at the Days Inn Hotel. And one additional call was made from Maryland to Perry's Detroit residence while Horn was checked in at a Maryland hotel. The calling card was used to make a 21-minute phone call from a payphone in Beverly Hills to Perry's home in Detroit. The card was used again to make a call from a payphone at the Calverton Shopping Center in Beltsville, Maryland to Frankel's Bar in Detroit. Now, backing up a little bit as to how all of this came about. I mentioned that it was during the spring of 1992 that Horn's first cousin, Thomas Turner, and his good friend, James Perry, were roommates at a home in Detroit. Around this time, Tommy Turner met up with his cousin Horn at another one of their cousins' house named Jean Baker. From there, Horn began visiting Tommy on several more occasions and it was during one of those visits that Tommy mentioned that his friend James Perry might be able to help him out with the custody and visitation problems he was having with his children. From there, Tommy denied all involvement in the murders and was granted full immunity in exchange for his cooperation. 
Tommy would later testify about helping Perry obtain rental cars on numerous occasions, including one in early December of 1992, late January of 1993, early February of 1993, and then for an entire week from March 1st through March 8th, 1993. And you know, the murders did occur during that time span on March 3rd. As the summer and fall of that year approached, Horn began telling Tommy that things were getting a little hairy, while reminding Tommy to not say anything to police. But Tommy was picked up by the FBI in January of 1994, at which time he called Horn and Horn arranged for him to have an attorney. Tommy also reported that he facilitated some phone calls between Horn and Perry in the months after the murders, as well as a call around Thanksgiving of 1993. But what Tommy didn't know was that his phone had been wiretapped by the FBI starting in November of 1993 through January of 1994. During a November 25, 1993 phone call between the two, arrangements were made for a contact between Horn and Perry to be made at 4 p.m. the following day. On November 26, on that date, Perry went into Frankel's bar around 4 p.m., and left about 28 minutes later. And two days later, on November 28th, a series of calls were made between the three men between 4 p.m. and 10.15 p.m. On that same evening, a direct long-distance call was made from Marsha Webb's home to a place in Detroit called Mr. Money. Lawrence Horn was living with his cousin Marsha at this time, the one who had given him the calling card, and she denied making that phone call to Detroit as did her boyfriend, who also lived in the home. Mr. Money was a place owned by an acquaintance of James Perry. I looked it up, and I have no idea what Mr. Money is. There is nothing about that place online as to what it was then or if it ever existed at all. I didn't find anything. So on that date, that series of calls are made on November 28th. Perry's home had been raided by the FBI. And I'm sure this is what triggered this flurry of calls. Among the items seized from his home was a catalog from Paladin Press. In it was an advertisement for a book called Hitman, a Technical Manual for Independent Contractors. The investigation into this revealed that James Perry ordered the Hitman book as well as another book entitled How to Make Disposable Silencers. However, there are also step-by-step instructions as to how to make a homemade silencer in the Hitman book 2. It's in chapter 3 entitled The Disposable Silencer. And it says in part, The silencer is one of the most important tools a professional will ever have. The silenced weapon. When fired, will not draw attention. Lack of attention means more time. Time means getting the job right. The panic and the pressure is absent. There are many books available on the subject of making your own silencer. Most of the methods require machine shop tools and the ability to use them with precision accuracy. This fact alone has put a whole lot of would-be professionals out of the game, or at least back into the ranks of the amateurs. On the following pages, you will learn how to make without the need of special engineering ability or expensive machine shop tools, a silencer of the highest quality and effectiveness. 
the finished product will attach to your 22 and will be no louder than the noise made by a pellet gun. Because it is so inexpensive, mine costs less than $20 to make, you can easily dispose of it after the job without any great loss. Future silencers will cost even less to make since many of the materials will not be used up in the first application. Your first silencer will require possibly two days to assemble, including drying time, as you carefully follow the directions step by step. After you make a couple of them, it will become so easy and so routine that you'll be able to whip one up in just a few hours. (sighs) So dumb, right, dreamers? I mean, it's like we're talking about baking cookies or something here. Anyway, when it's done, no need to take it out to the woods to try it. Just stack some magazines and newspapers in a box and shoot to your heart's content in your garage. Believe me, it's that good. Recite your gun once the silencer is in place, and when you do go out into the woods, experiment to test how your range is affected. You will lose some distance, and this must be taken into consideration while planning your hit. Okay, so the book then has details and diagrams with step-by-step instructions on how to build this thing. I'm not going to go over the directions. The images of the steps have not been transcribed into this archived article. But the items needed to build this silencer are a drill rod, one foot of quarter inch brake line from the auto parts store, one quart of fiberglass resin with hardener, one foot of one and a half inch PVC pipe and two end caps, one yard of fiberglass mat, one roll of masking tape, one one eighth inch drill bit, one three sixteenth inch drill bit, a handful of rubber bands, three to four razor blades, one sheet of 80 grit sandpaper, six small wood screws, and one box of steel wool. So dreamers, I'm sure that there are plenty of tutorials online nowadays and on YouTube. So that's as far as I think we need to talk about this. But anyway, James Perry ordered these books and he wrote a check for them on January 24th, 1992. So this takes us back to nearly 15 months before the murders actually took place. And the check that he wrote bounced, but the order was processed on January 28, 1992, and the loss was noted on the books for the accounting purposes of Paladin Press on May 28, 1992. The Hitman Manual recommended, among other things, that the best gun to use for a professional Hitman is an AR-7 rifle because it is lightweight and easy to hide when it is disassembled. It recommended that the serial number be drilled out and while still at the crime scene to use a large metal file on the inside of the barrel to alter the ballistics lands and grooves. Let me read an excerpt from that section of the book here that's being referred to in these court documents. In Chapter 2 of the Hitman Manual, entitled Equipment under the Checklist section, it reads, A hitman without a gun is like a carpenter without a hammer. Not very effective. What kinds of guns does he use and where does he obtain them? Unless he has a proper false ID, he certainly cannot make this purchase from the local gun shop. Fill out federal registration forms linking the weapon back to himself. 
What other basic equipment will the beginner need as essential tools of the trade? What equipment should be added to your inventory later? Under the heading of basic equipment checklist, it says weapons, AR-7 rifle or any breakdown type, 3-6 power scope, disposable rifle silencer, two extra 15 to 30 shot rifle clips, 22 Ruger Mark 1 or 2 pistol or any fixed barrel type, disposable silencer for the pistol, a shoulder holster, and extra pistol clips. Under ammunitions, it says hollow point bullets, liquid poison, and wax. Under accessories, it says double-edged knife with six-inch blade, disposable gloves, preferably flesh-toned, handcuffs, ski mask or stocking mask, and a duffel bag with a lock. Okay, so if you're like me, you might be wondering what the hell is up with the poison and the wax. Well, the author of this book talks extensively about poisons and how to make your own from various plants or whatever. He even brought up oleander, which is a thing that we talked about in a recent Patreon episode when we discussed death row inmate Angelina Rodriguez, who was convicted of murdering her husband of only five months using antifreeze. She had also attempted to use oleander and she talked about it frequently on several occasions and how the plant can be brewed into a poisonous tea. Well, the author of this book gives you the instructions on making that poison as well as several others. But this poison and wax, it's so weird. Okay, so the book says, quote, extra clips are a must for both the rifle and the pistol and should be carried as a precautionary measure. Hollow point bullets are recommended because they deform on impact, making them untraceable. As an added precaution, you can fill the hollows with a liquid poison to ensure the success of your operation. Use a handheld 1 8 inch drill bit, enlarge the hollow point openings, fill with liquid poison of your choice, then seal with a drop of melted wax. Weird, right? So bizarre. I've never heard of anything like that to go through all this trouble to make sure that your hit goes down exactly as you want it to. But anyway, the manual also recommended that there be an upfront payment of expense money anywhere between $500 and $5,000 depending. The book says, you should receive expense money upfront on all jobs. This money is separate and is not included in the contract amount. Expenses generally run between $500 and $5,000 depending on the type of job and the job location. The money will cover travel, lodging, food, accessories such as disguises, and equipment, since all of these things are disposable and will enable you to replace any throwaway weapon that you use on any particular job. Any amount left over belongs to you. And don't cut any corners trying to make an extra buck. Give the man the most professional job his money can buy. I mean... Right, dreamers? Nothing worse than a penny-pinching cheapskate hitman, am I right? Don't cut quarters. So stupid. So, between August 18, 1992 and January 28, 1993, 
Either James Perry or his girlfriend, a woman named Pauline McGee, received a number of Western Union money transfers from a person named George Shaw with the Los Angeles area phone number and two different addresses on Sunset Boulevard. The phone number was found to belong to a law firm in Universal City, but no one by the name of George Shaw worked at the firm. One of the addresses he listed did not exist, but the other address used to be where Motown Records was located. But again, nobody named George Shaw ever worked there. However, in the July 27, 1992 edition of the Los Angeles Times in the obituary section, there was an announcement regarding the death of Motown star Mary Wells, and near her obituary was one for a man named George Shaw. Less than a month later, George Shaw was wiring money to James Perry from a former Motown address. Remember, Lawrence Horn worked for Motown for quite some time. Circumstantial? Highly. But that is a huge coincidence nonetheless. Several of Horn's friends recalled discussing the news of Mary Wells passing that summer. So the dates and the amounts of the money transfers from George Shaw were as follows. $500 on August 18, 1992, $2,500 on September 22nd, $2,500 on September 30th, $300 on December 4th, $200 on January 28, 1993. The December 4th transfer was received by James Perry on December 5th at the All-American Truck Plaza in Breezewood, Pennsylvania. The January 28th transfer was received by Perry at Mailboxes, etc., in Gaithersburg, Maryland. So, several pieces of evidence were recovered following the triple homicide. Three weeks after the killings on March 26, 1993, pieces of an AR-7 rifle were found discarded along Route 28 in Montgomery County, Maryland. Holes had been drilled into one of the pieces consistent with the manner in which the Hitman Manual recommended in order to obliterate the serial number. An FBI forensic metallurgist opined that the weapon had been exposed to the environment for a few weeks and it had been intentionally damaged and disassembled. On March 3rd, the day of the murders, police found a metal file. One of its tips had been wrapped with duct tape and was found on the ground near the wheelchair ramp leading up to the front porch of Millie's home. Forensic testing of the file revealed that it was covered in materials normally found in gun propellants, and those materials were found on the portion of the file that could have fit into the barrel of an AR-7 22 caliber rifle. Bullet fragments recovered from the bodies of the victims revealed that they were consistent with a 22 caliber long rifle ammunition. The AR-7 is the gun that the author of the Hitman Manual consistently recommends throughout his publication, and it looks as though that was yet another recommendation that James Perry had followed. So James Perry was arrested in Detroit on July 19, 1994, after an indictment was handed down in Maryland for the murders of Millie, Trevor, and Janice. One of the few things that Perry asked when he was being taken into custody was, is anybody else being arrested today? He was told yes. Lawrence Horn had been identified as being involved in this case. Perry denied knowing anybody named Lawrence Horn. 
In total, James Perry followed about two dozen separate instructions and recommendations listed in the Hitman manual when carrying out the murder-for-hire plot. He did choose an AR-7 rifle. He followed the instructions on destroying the serial number. He affixed a homemade silencer to the end of the gun before firing at, at his victims. It is believed that he first shot Millie in the living room of the home. And it is believed that not only did the silencer make the gun harder to hear when he was firing it, but also Janice being in the room with Trevor and all of his machines operating, that those noises prevented her from hearing anything going on downstairs as well. After killing Janice and then suffocating Trevor, Perry staged the scene to look like a burglary per the hitman manual. He tossed around some items and took a few small things that he could hide easily and then dispose of. And then, to further cover up his crime, he broke down the gun, filed down its identifying marks, and dumped the pieces along the roadside as he fled in his rental car that had the stolen license plates affixed to it. James Perry went on trial for the triple murders in 1995 and was convicted and sentenced to death. The following year, Horn went on trial and he too was found guilty on all three murders and he was sentenced to life in prison. However, in 2001, Perry successfully appealed his conviction. He was tried a second time, convicted and sentenced to three life terms without the possibility of parole. However, the legal battles were far from over. Eight-year-old Trevor Horn did leave behind that $1.7 million settlement. At the time of his arrest in 1995, his father was embroiled in a civil court battle to inherit his dead son's money. I was unable to find any follow-up information regarding what eventually became of the trust fund, but I'm fairly certain that Lawrence Horn never saw a penny of it. Trevor was survived by his two sisters, so I hope that the money eventually went to benefit them as they tried to move on and pick up the pieces of their shattered lives. And then there was the issue of the book, Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors. It's clear to anyone who examines this case closely that James Perry followed some of the instructions and advice given in the book though he didn't follow them all. The book is actually ridiculously in-depth, and at the end of the episode, I will go over more of its ridiculousness with you. If this case weren't so tragic, it would be laughable. But first, let's talk about the civil case against Paladin Press. The families of the victims filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the publisher in 1996, looking to halt any further production and sale of the book. They also wanted to gain full control over any of the copies that had not been sold yet, and along with the monetary settlement, as they maintained that Perry used their publication as a guide to commit triple homicide. However, the lawsuit was initially dismissed on the grounds of the First Amendment's freedom of speech. While the judge found the book to be loathsome, reprehensible, and devoid of any significant social value, it did not violate any areas of free speech that are not protected by the Constitution. The families appealed this decision and with the help and support of the National Victim Center, while Paladin Press was strongly supported by a variety of large media organizations, 
including the New York Times and CNN, due to their concerns over the precedent that would be set if Paladin Press was forced to halt all future publications of the book. The appellate court reversed the original dismissal of the case and sent it back down to the lower court for trial, finding that a jury could possibly rule that Paladin Press, in fact, aided and abetted James Perry in the triple murders, despite the fact there was nothing to indicate that Paladin Press ever had any sort of relationship with Perry or assisted him in the carrying out of the killings. The court found that the book was published with the intention to be sold to murderers or wannabe murderers, and that was enough to establish the aiding and abetting with its very detailed instructions and the way that the author's words were encouraging and helpful to the reader. The court rejected the publisher's claim that its decision would create new and unprecedented areas of liabilities for writers and journalists who publish works involving both fiction and true crime and denounced the notion that Paladin Press assisted in the murders. But the court ruled that the book did assist Perry and its intentions were for the book to be purchased by criminals and this is what made the case unique. The lawsuit was eventually settled in 1999 and the publishers not only had to agree to stop selling the book, they were also ordered to pay the victims millions of dollars in compensation. In a 1999 article entitled, The Day They Came to Sue the Book, the court takes out a contract on free speech by David Koppel. He posed this question, Is a publisher legally responsible for the crimes perpetrated by one of its readers? In America, the answer is now yes. Koppel wrote that Paladin had long been known to publish practical books for anti-establishmentarians, books that taught readers how to build a rural home without having to connect to the electrical grid, guides on surviving disasters, how to pass drug tests, and how to teach yourself self-defense. At the time that he was writing this article, one of its newest books that Paladin Press had for sale was entitled Contingency Cannibalism, Super Hardcore Survivalism's Dirty Little Secret. And Koppel noted that the book sales would not do that great if they were only intended to be sold to cannibals, that its intended audience would be anyone interested in these types of unusual topics. Those who sided with Paladin Press say that if the success of the Hitman Manual were a result of the book being sold to only murderers, it would not have had any commercial success at all. James Perry is the only known purchaser of the book to have actually used the book in a crime. In fact, the sale of the book surged in the ensuing years following the filing of the wrongful death lawsuit. And Koppel says, and I also kind of alluded to the sentiment earlier in the episode, that James Perry would have most likely carried out the murders even if he never purchased and read the Hitman Manual. And besides, Perry ended up not following the book's instructions as much as he should have, otherwise he may have never been caught. He checked into the Days Inn Hotel under his own name and engaged in a volley of long-distance phone calls traced back to him and Lawrence Horn in the months prior, during, and following the murders. Now, Dreamers, I do want to point out a couple of things about Koppel's article here that bothered me. One is, is that he wrote the author of the book, who used the pseudonym Rex Farrell, is not actually a hitman, 
but rather a divorced mother of two who needed the money to settle her property tax debts. That when she submitted the fictional manuscript about a hitman to Paladin, it was they who wanted her to change it to a how-to book. This is not true, and I already went over that. Another thing is Koppel kind of sort of does a little bit of victim blaming in this article. Towards the end, he writes about blaming others aside from Paladin for what ultimately happened to Millie, Trevor, and Janice. The U.S. Army was the entity that trained James Perry in using an M16 rifle, which is similar to an AR-17. So are they to blame for putting him through the kind of training that would enable him to take a human life with ease? Are they to blame? Or how about the state of Michigan who let James Perry out of prison after serving a minimal amount of a sentence for armed robbery and attempted murder of a police officer? Or should we blame Mildred Horn herself? Yep, this guy wrote that. He goes on. She knew her ex-husband was a murderer. He had bragged to her that during his Navy service that he shoved a sailor off a ship's deck and into the ocean and made it look like an accident. She also said that Horn had tried to kill her on more than one occasion, and she warned relatives that if she were killed, Horn would be responsible. But there is no evidence that she took any protective steps beyond having a burglar alarm installed and providing Janice with the warning to never open the door to strangers while she wasn't home. Nor was there any evidence that Janice was ever warned that she might be putting her life in danger if she accepted the job to take care of Trevor. Um, how about moving clear across the country with her children to get away from Lawrence Horn? How much further could she have possibly gone short of going straight into the Atlantic Ocean? I think Millie did plenty to maintain her distance from Lawrence while providing the best possible care for all three of her children. As for what I think, to me, the book is stupid and useless and isn't worth the paper that it was printed on. I do understand the implications when it comes to the First Amendment, but honestly, nobody is losing out. Nobody is missing out with this book being forced out of publication and into the public domain. As a matter of fact, if you are an aspiring hitman or hit woman and you want to read this book and use it as a guide, all I have to say is good luck in prison because the whole thing is utter garbage. Many things have been blamed over the years for crime and violence, not just books, movies, video games, things like that. This still remains the only case in U.S. history where a publisher was held liable for a crime. As I said in the beginning, this book is obsolete now. I will go over more of its contents in a few minutes so we can laugh at it together. James Perry died in prison as a result of an illness on December 30th, 2009, after serving about 14 years of his life sentence. Lawrence Horn died in prison in 2017, after serving about 27 years in prison of his sentence. Okay, so let's get to some of the content in the Hitman Manual before we close out this episode. There is a warning before the table of contents that reads, it is against the law to manufacture a silencer without an appropriate license from the federal government. There are state and local laws prohibiting the possession of weapons 
and their accessories in many areas. Severe penalties are prescribed for violations of these laws. Neither the author nor the publisher assumes responsibility for the use or misuse of information contained in this book for informational purposes only. I already read you the preface and there's also a prologue that outlines a fictional hit that was successfully carried out using many of the techniques outlined in the book. After that, the book goes into nine chapters. The first chapter is called The Beginning. This is where you learn how to become an expert at this chosen profession. And it lists all the ways that you need to prepare your mind and body before you take your first contract hit. It says to read as many articles and periodicals you can about weapons and techniques in magazines like Soldier of Fortune. Keep up with new trends, developments, gadgets, and technology. Look for books and supplies you may need in advertisements and classified sections of newspapers and magazines. Also read military newsletters, many of which can be found at the local library. Read books. Books on professional hitmen are hard to find, but there are a few out there by publishers who have the backbone to provide that information to us who take this very seriously. Also read as many murder and mystery books as possible where stories can provide you with ingenious new methods of terrorizing, victimizing, and exterminating. Sometimes you'll find a new poison or new ways of body disposal. Try not to laugh at the warped personalities and trench coats of these fictional characters as you may find new and inventive ways that you could test out and use. Trench coats. So stupid. Subscribe to your local newspaper as this is where you might find your next employer or victim. So Dreamers, essentially what the author is saying here, if you see a crime that is making a big headline in your area, you might be able to get yourself hired on as a contract killer by any one of the individuals involved in that crime. And it's in your local area, so it will be geographically advantageous. Yeah, okay. Then it suggests that you follow stories about people who have been charged with carrying out a contract hit, study the details of that case, study law enforcement techniques, know the mistakes that the killer made, and if he is acquitted, make note of his attorney's name in case you ever find yourself needing a good lawyer. If you see someone in the news who has been arrested for drug trafficking or drug dealing, he might be looking for someone to help him eliminate witnesses, and that could be you. Keep up with the political gossip and drama. Politicians are corrupt, and there might be just one of them desperate enough to want to hire a contract hit on their political rival. A political death brought on by scandalous scandals. Keep tabs on any news or gossip about nasty divorces because chances are one of them could use your discreet professional services. And there's always the one who doesn't want to go through a divorce and would rather collect on a sizable life insurance policy. Also, keep your eyes on the classified sections and scan for ads for any new toys or equipment that you might be able to purchase from a private party and avoid having to register any weapons under your name. Also, attend gun shows. Keep a local directory. This used to be the white pages. 
where everybody's name, address, and phone numbers in the area are listed in alphabetical order. Also have several yellow pages books and familiarize yourself with as many specialty stores and suppliers within a 200 mile radius of your home. You don't want to get all of your supplies and materials locally. Also have a map of your city and plan your getaway routes carefully in advance. If your job is out of town, then a map is a must. Also, if you need to travel, go through a travel agency using a fake name. They could do all the work for you when it comes to making travel and flight arrangements. The book next suggests that if your job is out of town, you can mail your weapon to yourself ahead of time using fake names at the post office closest to the airports. Because, he says, airport mail does not get x-rayed that was sent from their dedicated post office. This wouldn't work today, but it still sounded dumb as hell back then too. The next instructions would also not work today, where the book suggests that you can go to the local post office of the target of your hit, your mark, and use the Freedom of Information Act. You can request the last known address of the person you have been contracted to kill. Again, this wouldn't fly. A couple of things that I did not know, that you could get your target's address by sending $1 and a written request addressed to the postmaster and Freedom of Information Act will be returned to you within a few days with the updated address of your target. It also said that you can address an empty envelope to the last known address with your return address in the upper left-hand corner and write on the envelope, do not forward address correction requested. And in a few days, you would receive back the envelope with the updated information of your intended target. Obtain law enforcement handbooks from any college bookstore where criminal justice cases are taught. Learn everything you can about the law and how it works and how it applies to you. Learn what constitutes a good arrest and what abuses and mistakes can make an otherwise good arrest null and void. This will give you the added advantage of knowing how your opponents, meaning law enforcement, how they think and operate as you are planning your successful job. So stupid, right? You can study up on outsmarting the police in advance. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Utilize as many resources you possibly can for information that will help you carry out your jobs successfully. Even tabloids often have ads for fake IDs, gadgets, and non-traceable mailing addresses. Skim through old papers on microfilm at the library. And the library employees will be more than happy to help you find books and materials on the subjects that you want to study. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, Mr. or Ms. Librarian, I'm looking for study guides on murder, killing, and how to be a hitman and get away with it. Can you point me in the right direction? How dumb. You're going to go into the public library and ask for materials on these subjects that you're trying to study? Uh, it's ridiculous. And... The book gets into fitness. Your body should be as fit as your mind. You should be able to run, jump, climb, swim, push, pull, and meet all the physical demands required of your job. You need to pay careful attention to exercise and diet. And if you are going to partake in tobacco products and alcohol, keep it within moderation and all drugs should be avoided. 
you will need endurance if you come into a situation where you will need to engage in hand-to-hand combat. Then the author writes, I, as a professional, never use drugs, although I will steal them for financial gain or use them as bait or even an induction agent for some chemical that I know will do an effective job. I do not need an unreal high that can mar my judgment. There is no margin for error in this business. A single mistake could cost you your life, either literally or providing evidence to take away your freedom. Either way, you are just as dead. If you have to depend on an artificial sense of courage in order to carry out your assignment, then this job is not for you. Combat training. If you are afraid of taking a punch, again, this job is not right for you. No matter how careful you are, no matter how thorough your research, at some time you will probably have to prove or defend yourself physically. And skills you can acquire are to your advantage. You can get expert training in hand-to-hand combat if you can find someone qualified to teach you. This will be someone with special forces training. You won't learn these skills at the local karate school that includes women and children. That will get you killed. I see. So you find a special forces trained person who teaches men only. I see. Okay. That's going to work for you, right? Then the book suggests that you look up mercenary schools that are advertised in various military magazines. Look for a school that can teach you more than you already know and be prepared for one hell of a workout while you build your skills. An added benefit in attending one of these schools is that the people you will meet are just like you. They take the game seriously. Be prepared to meet people who have the same interests in weapons, explosives, and effective kill techniques as you do. Some of them may prove to be a very good future resource or even future employers. Then it is suggested that you sharpen your observation skills with awareness training, studying your surroundings, etc. And lastly, this chapter says your first class mechanic requirements for doing this job is expert marksmanship, thorough knowledge and respect for all weapons, knowledge through reading, expert advice and experimentation with explosives, poisons and diversions knowledge and ability of hand-to-hand combat, top mental and physical conditioning, and common sense. I hate to break it to you, Rex Farrell. If anyone has even a shred of common sense, I'm certain that they are not reading this book and taking any of it seriously. Chapter 2 is entitled Equipment, and I already went over some of this chapter earlier in the episode. This is where Rex Farrell recommends the AR-7 that it breaks down, that it's lightweight, that it's easy to carry and conceal. The book gives instructions on obliterating the serial number in ways to avoid the numbers being raised by acid tests. Practice firing the weapon with a scope to test your accuracy by shooting a piece of plywood, which is slightly stronger than the human skull. The book says that once the job is done, use a steel file to alter the inside of the barrel of the gun to change its ballistics. And don't forget to pick up your shell casings. 
The book also lists five instructions on what to do with the gun to alter it. If it's something that you do not want to throw away when the job is done, but says that the gun used to commit a crime, any gun used to commit a crime should be disposed of. Oh, and here's a good one. If you must obtain a weapon through legal channels, it might be wise to pay some beggar or wino $20 to use his ID for him to do the signing. Next, Rex goes over your basic accessories. A duffel bag that is inconspicuous to transport your tools to your job site, and it should have a lock. Everything should be wiped clean before placing it in the bag. Also have four to five pairs of disposable gloves and change gloves frequently as you reassemble the gun, carry out the job, and disassemble the gun once again. Never dispose of the gloves at a job site. Also bring a pair of handcuffs in case you need to restrain your target before you pull the trigger. A knife with a six-inch blade, double-edged with a serrated section to ensure deep, ragged tears. Make sure your knife thrusts go into vital organs and twist before you pull out. A ski mask rolled up and worn as a knit cap can be easily pulled down over your face, and this works better than using nylon stockings. Also bring a pen light, an ice pick, a large screwdriver, a flat bladed knife, or a hook knife, all things needed to gain entry through locked doors and windows. Then you might want to get various disguises, wigs, fake beards, hair dye, read up on theatrical makeup and experiment with altering your appearance. You can use the wigs, fake tattoos, scars, fake black eyes to fool witnesses. If you put a big, huge wart on the end of your nose, then that is going to be the only thing that the witness is going to remember about you. You can also have things to dress up as like a repairman or a police officer in order for people to let their guard down. Some professionals think it's silly to use disguises, but it can give you time and freedom to move. As for your clothing, you need to be coordinated to the job setting. For example, a hippie would be out of place in an office complex where all the men are wearing suits. Dress to blend in with your surroundings. Coveralls are suggested, basic dark coveralls, but never camouflage. They have large pockets to keep your gloves, extra clips, and tools. You may even be able to conceal your rifle. And underneath, you could wear regular clothes for a quick change when the job is done. And from there, the chapter gets into lock picking and outlines full instructions on what to use and how to pick locks. Keep an air gun with you to shoot out lights, homemade poison darts to shoot at your target or possibly his barky dog, 20 feet of knotted rope in case you have to scale something. And then as you complete jobs, you can start acquiring the luxury items and tools. You know, be a fancy hitman. Things that would make James Bond envious of you. Attache cases to conceal weapons, fancy cameras, laser scopes, bugging equipment, and other nice, expensive gadgets. You can add to your weapons collection with fully automatic toys. He calls them toys, but they're automatic weapons like M16s. 
as well as tranquilizer guns and hand grenades and sophisticated explosives. You will also be able to upgrade to the best fake IDs out there, real uniforms, real badges, and you can start collecting and buying disposable cars and boats, even your very own plane. Rex finishes off the chapter by writing, Money talks, and for every need you have, there is a man out there who is willing to fill it for you for a price. But money can buy more than material things. Money can buy good attorneys, judges, alibis, and time. The possibilities are endless for the smart man who plans his moves carefully, is mentally and physically prepared, and doesn't leave any trail as he performs his highly paid services. So, as you can see, the author is really trying to get the reader worked up and excited about becoming a hitman. Chapter 3 is all about the disposable silencer, and I went over that for the most part in the episode already. Chapter 4 is entitled, There is More Than One Way to Kill a Rabbit. In this chapter, Rex goes over various ways, aside from using a gun, to kill somebody, which he discussed at great length in Chapter 2. He talked about including various types of explosives, C4, hand grenades, dynamite, and fertilizer bombs, which I don't think is readily available since the Oklahoma City bombing where Timothy McVeigh used fertilizer bombs to blow off the side of the federal building. Those fertilizers are illegal, or at least in some places, as a result of that bombing. Then the book goes into arson being a method of covering up a kill or creating an accident but acknowledge that arson investigation is always making advancements. If you're going to fake a fire, Rex says, do it right. Don't use traceable accelerants and build a fire with lots of smoke. The smoke is what kills and covers up evidence. Then the book goes into killing techniques using your bare hands, knives, and silent weapons, and then poisons. He suggested a way to obtain the poisons without looking suspicious is to create a fake company and a letterhead, mail out letters to various companies about certain chemicals, asking about purchase requirements, costs, and delivery. And the companies, he said, would send back a list for you to order your poisons from. You can get good books about poisonous plants from garden supply stores and make your own poisons at home and save them for future use. And then the book goes on into coercing a victim into talking if it is information your employer is wanting to get out of the target. The author actually says that he had the opportunity to observe a master of persuasion on an assignment a few years ago. <sighs> so dumb. Apparently, the man who he called an Indian, he said Indian, but I will refer to this person as a Native American, and how this master of persuasion, Native American, stabbed a man with an ice pick demanding for him to talk. But the man stayed quiet. So next, the Native American grabbed a pair of pliers and began using the pliers to crack on these man's knuckles. Eventually, the victim gave in. And the author wrote, quote, The Indian listened, asked a few questions, then unstrapped the trembling man from the chair and set him free. 
The big man raced for the door and into the night. I'm not sure, but I think the Indian was a bit disappointed that it all ended so quickly. But the stain on the front of his pants showed that he enjoyed himself tremendously. So yeah, this just went from stupid to gross. Then Rex gets into getting rid of the corpus delecti or delecti. I don't know which is the right way to say that. Corpus delecti, corpus delecti, whichever. Getting rid of a body, basically. You can dismember a body, pack it into an ice chest, transport and dispose of it in various places in the countryside. You can cut off the head and bury the body, then take the head to a deserted location place a stick of dynamite in the mouth and blow the telltale dentition to smithereens. Then dental records can't be used. The body will decompose and never be able to yield fingerprints and they will never be able to identify the body. You can even chop off the fingertips and bury them somewhere else. Of course, this too is outdated and won't work anymore. Or you can dispose of a body like the mafia does, Rex says, such as burying the body someplace where you know cement is going to be poured the next day. So stupid. And I really wonder if that ever really worked. Maybe, but I've heard that burying a body in cement will eventually cause the cement to collapse or sink in. I don't know. I'd have to look into that more. Or there's the old tying cement blocks to a victim and sinking the body. But if you do that, you have to make several deep stab wounds into the lungs of the body so the gases can be released as the body decomposes, which if the gases aren't released, the body will rise to the surface. And if you decide to sink a body with cement blocks, the whole body has to be heavily wrapped from head to toe in heavy chains to keep it from coming apart while the elements and sea life do their work. You can bury a body, but again, stab up the lungs to prevent bloating and use lye to facilitate decomposition. Or you could take the body to quicksand, to the open ocean, or to isolated caves and dump it where it will never be found. Because we all have such ready access to quicksand, open ocean, and isolated caves in our neighborhoods, right? Then this asshole gets into dealing with dogs. He gets into suggestions on how to poison the dog, using meat to wrap poison in, that this is the best way to get rid of the dog. Shooting the dog will cause the dog to yelp or howl in pain. But if you're an expert marksman, one good shot behind the right ear will kill the dog instantly. You can also use a blow dart with a needle filled with poison in the tip. This gives the best results. So says Rex. In chapter five, he gets into surveillance, getting to know your target, gathering information about their day, their routine, and you're given a worksheet in this stupid book, like a, a checklist to follow so you don't forget anything. It's best if you get your employer to fill out the worksheet as much as possible. And once you gather all the intel you need, you must burn this piece of paper after you have everything memorized. You can't be caught with this incriminating evidence. The book had a sample form to use as a guideline, but it is not included in the archived version of the book. 
but there are a number of items to help get information about your target's emotional state, his lifestyle, and various ways you might be able to carry out the hit. And when you're getting ready to surveil your target, make sure you bring blankets if it's cold, a thermos of coffee, cold drinks, food, a portable radio, but don't bring any reading material because you have to keep your eyes looking around. Bring books on tape to help pass the time. Try getting tiny bugging devices that you can plant inside your target's home so you can listen for up to two miles away. Have binoculars, infrared cameras, but ultimately, the best way is for you to sit and watch. And don't forget, if somebody notices you, postpone the job. If you get a traffic citation, call off the job. If you run into a neighbor or a passerby while loitering around the target's home, call off the job. And I have a good one to add. If you're reading this book and think you're an expert hitman at the end of it, you're not. Call off the job. Chapter 6 is entitled Opportunity Knocks. It goes over how to find work in your new profession. Placing ads in military and gun periodicals, but it may tip off law enforcement or the FBI. Okay, so that's about the most legit thing this guy has written up to this point. I agree. Putting ads for your services as a hitman will tip off the FBI. Got it. You might want to find work through an acquaintance who knows you're into weapons and combat and acting like a dumbass. He might have a problem that needs to be solved, so approach him gently and see how serious he is about taking care of his problem. You may have to find work as a bodyguard or a courier or a messenger in order to build up credibility. But be suspicious of anyone who approaches you about illegal activity. And once you find someone, make sure of a number of things. That he's not full of BS. That he's serious about hiring you. That he has the courage to go through with it. Will he feel guilty? And will he point the finger at you if he gets arrested. And once you get past all the formalities, you have to agree on a price. Depending on the target, it should range from anywhere from $50,000 to $250,000, but never less than $30,000. And all expense money comes up front to and is not included in the agreed amount. Chapter 7 is entitled Getting the Job Done Right. And I can sum it up in four words. Don't use this book. Rex goes over gathering information about your target, getting a photograph of the person, and getting floor plans of the job site. And then this is so stupid. He says that all this information needs to be destroyed once you've memorized it. But if you need to carry it with you, mail it to yourself in a sealed envelope and carry that sealed envelope with you because law enforcement agencies are cautious about opening mail without probable cause. Yeah, if the police are up in your face questioning you about a contract killing, they're not going to be afraid to take your stupid mail from you and get a warrant. The chapter gets into transportation, using a travel agent, using a false name, acquiring several fake IDs and getting a rental car, also using a fake name. This is all much easier said than done nowadays, but just whatever you do, don't use your own car. If you are flying into the location of the job site, 
fly to a destination several hundred miles away, and drive the rest. Once you get a rental car, bring with you an out-of-state license plate because if police run them, the stolen plates will only appear in the state that they are stolen from. This isn't going to work nowadays, but James Perry did do this. He stole someone's license plate in Michigan before heading to Maryland, and that plate was ran and traced back to the owner of the plates, and she said that she did not know who James Perry was. Rex then gets into transporting your weapons because you can't fly with a gun, but he says you can carry one in your luggage. I believe you still can, but it has to be unloaded and completely secured in your luggage that cannot be easily accessed. If you can't do that, you can send the weapons ahead of you by UPS or express mail to the local post office to your job site. He also tells you how to pack up your weapons really well in metal or foam lined boxes, packed in several layers of cardboard, disassemble your gun and wrap the parts in soft cloths or even the clothes that you're going to wear when you carry out the hit. If you have to drive, wrap your gun to look like a gift and keep it locked in the trunk. Keep the gun in a container that has a combination lock because police will have to get a warrant in order to make you give them the combination. Uh, I'm thinking that if police have a warrant to get into your lockbox, they're not going to be politely asking you for anything. They're just going to bust it open. Like the police are going to ask nicely for your combination and expect you to give it to them. So dumb. During your travels, never use $100 bills. Use as many small bills as possible wherever you go and do not tip big. Don't make yourself memorable to anyone. Oh, and definitely no souvenir shopping. No welcome to Florida keychains. So just drop that noise right now. And dreamers, I don't know what is more stupid. The author telling the hitman to avoid souvenir shopping or a hitman that wants to go souvenir shopping. Oh, and stay away from women on every level while you are on assignment. Rex says... Women have an eerie way of memorizing quickly and in fine detail any man that shows a sexual interest in them. Now Rex is an expert on women, you guys, okay? Don't use any drugs or stimulants. Be careful of what you eat or drink so you don't get food poisoning. Don't be loud or rude or disruptive or argumentative at any point while on assignment. Rex says, and this is a direct quote, Though inside you are a wild animal stalking prey, others may view you as yet another passive wimp. Let them. (sighs) Wild animal stalking prey. What an idiot. (sighs) Next is this really long section. I'm sorry, this book is so, so dumb. I just, I can't get over that somebody actually wrote this stuff and that Somebody actually used this to commit a serious crime. The next section is about the job site before and after the kill and how to avoid leaving evidence behind. You know, wiping up fingerprints, making sure the victims are really dead, not taking your gloves off if you have to use the bathroom. And when you leave, walk casually, change into one of your disguises. And if there's blood on your clothes, burn them 
and anything else that was near the crime scene. Remember those steps. Hide, burn, bury, toss. Every tool, every article of clothing. Stay calm and obey all traffic laws. And don't forget to wipe down the rental car. Then Rex gets into controlling your emotions because hitmen have feelings too. He may be caring and compassionate, but one emotion a professional hitman should never have is remorse. Feel no guilt. You are like a machine and do what you need to do to cover your ass. But soon, your biggest problem is going to become your ego. Chapter 8 Ego, Women, and Partners Now that you have had your rendezvous with destiny, everybody around you is going to seem so annoyingly ordinary, so says Rex. You start to see people as irritating herds of pathetic sheep, following orders, doing as they're told, followers who are blind. You can't believe how dumb your friends have now become and you lose all respect for everyone around you. He writes, You have become different too. You recognize you've made some mistakes, but you know what they were, and they will never plague you again. Next time, and there will be a next time, there will be no hesitation, no fear. Your experience facing death head-on has taught you about life. You have the power and ability to stand alone. You no longer need a reason to kill. When all the guys get together and the bullshit starts to flow, you'll find it hard to listen to their tales of how tough they think they are. Their threats to get this person or that has become irritating. You stifle the urge to tell them how life really is. You control your anger at their pretension of being capable of carrying out the threats that they make. You resist the impulse to laugh at them. Your friends sense your irritation, but don't understand what has set you apart. You begin to shun social gatherings. You spend more time studying and accumulating and testing your tools while you wait for the next job to present itself. Like the great white shark, you have become a lone predator. Your ego is the greatest burden that will carry you from this day forth. Great white shark. <sighs> okay. So start learning to control your ego. This means keeping your mouth shut. You are a man. Without a doubt, you have proved it. You have come face to face with death and emerged the victor through your cunning and expertise. You have dealt with death as a professional. You don't need any second or third opinions to verify your manhood. And can I just throw in a little side note here related to the case today? If you murder two unsuspecting, unarmed women in the middle of the night and a quadriplegic, brain-damaged child with cerebral palsy, this does absolutely nothing for your manhood. Nothing. This is a person who is weak and cowardly. And that goes for anyone who murders anybody. It is never, ever, ever a measure of your quote-unquote manhood. I promise you that. Back to Rex. 
He says, don't brag, don't boast, don't hint at what you know or what you've done. Don't confide in your girlfriend or your wife. Only insecure bores must build themselves up with other people's opinions. Don't make huge purchases to reflect your ego. You have a large amount of money that you've never had before, but control your spending. It will look suspicious. If you live in a tiny apartment, stay there. Don't have any drastic changes in lifestyle. And now we're going to get to the section on women. What in the world does good old Rex have to say about this and his vast knowledge of women? Because of their uncanny ability to get into places and situations a man might find hard to duplicate because of their deceitful game-playing natures and because a woman can be twice as vicious as a man, a woman could be a better hired executioner. Fortunately for the world, women usually make only one man her target and then the nesting instincts take her off the streets and into her little world of babies, laundry, and housework as she creates and protects for her own. Unfortunately, even a hitman cannot deny that what women have to offer is a basic necessity. Yeah, he actually wrote this garbage in this book. He continued, A married man who becomes a hitman for hire faces a whole set of woman problems peculiar to themselves. Once a woman becomes the proclaimed property of one man, she feels it's her duty to ward off other predators, whether real or imaginary, through suspicion, jealousy, accusation, or even becoming her own detective to protect her rightful place. A married professional is then placed in the predicament of either telling his wife everything or nothing. Either way, she will have to be a very understanding woman. If you tell her what you've done, she may turn around and tell her mom, and then her mom tells her son, and so on. Then, a few months later, she catches you in bed with another woman, and in being hurt over the infidelity, she tells on you for the murder. If you choose to be married, make sure she's capable of being your partner in crime. Never let your roving eye for something on the side come to her attention. Women are highly emotional and rarely rational creatures. So, in one foul swoop, Rex Farrell here has managed to reduce the entire female population down to being untrustworthy, deceitful, vicious people who only live to please one man in this world to provide him babies, wash his clothes, and clean his house. But once she is his property, she presents a whole new set of problems because of her jealousy and inability to understand who will turn on you if you have sex with another woman because she is highly emotional and irrational. I really have no further words about this. The last chapter, he goes into some legalities where to keep your money, offshore accounts, laundering the money through businesses or real estate. And I think we can safely say that nobody listening to this is ever going to take financial advice from Rex Farrell. I can't go on anymore. If you want to read the book, I will put it into the show notes and you can read this junk on your own time. 
And that will bring this 147th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come over to the Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there we discuss the cases that we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcast that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories, posts about your pets, funny memes, come over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page and like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an eclectic roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. I'd like to thank you again so much for your patience. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.